Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining our Wednesday devotional. My name is Louie, and I am your Trinity's worship and media arts pastor. Each episode will have gospel-centered, meaningful discussions between Pastor Shamar and me. Join us every Wednesday for the podcast, and if you like what you see and hear, consider joining us on Sunday morning for worship. Thank you. Uh, hey, Shamar. <laughs> hey, Louie, how you doing? It's good to see you. Good to see you too. So uh, we are starting a new conversation, basically, uh, between a worship pastor and a, a a pastor who actually preaches, right? So, you know, yeah. I wanted to, we wanted to just uh, kind of have this conversation recorded and make it available for other people to watch it as well in their own time. Uh, but I wanted to just jump right in. So you wanted to talk about the the Book of Romans and yes. how that has a lot of quotes from the Book of Psalm. Um, yes. What's really interesting to me as a worship pastor is that it's it's really cool how the the books in the New Testament are constantly quoting things from the Old Testament. So oftentimes I think what the divide. Uh, at least cognitive, cognitively, what happens with just Christians who are not necessarily studying the Bible from an academic perspective or even from a pastor's perspective is that they seem like they're just cut off from one another. So Old Testament is in its own thing, in its own era. New Testament is in its own era. So it just, it just almost feels like they're there is this clear division and you constantly have been mentioning through uh, your sermon and Sunday worship that there are a lot of connections that the book writers of the new Testament keep mentioning from the old Testament. So uh, the particular chapter that you mentioned was Romans chapter three. So can you can just, I guess I'm kind of wondering how you would uh, make the connections between the two books and, you know, how evident in terms of like how worship might have looked like in in the time that Paul was writing this letter uh, to, you know, in, in the book of Romans. So excellent questions. So let me just say that for... Paul and the church in the book of Romans, worship would have been, I would say if you're, if you're part of the Orthodox tradition, right, Catholic and Orthodox tradition, you would have seen high liturgy in the same way that um, the Catholics have it. So there is a Orthodox Jewish liturgy, and I've been to synagogue a time or two, and it's really interesting, in the synagogue, most of the worship is hymns, psalms, and scriptures, right? And so they just, and they're going back and forth. It's not in any, I'm sure there's an order, but it's not like it's all the psalms and then all the hymns and then all the scriptures, but there's a rich intermingling of hymns, psalms, and scriptures. And so just like in our day, right, we have a playlist. In their day, they would have had a playlist as well. But that playlist would have consisted of, among other things, the book of the Psalms. And so you're, you're exactly right. I do try and make a lot of references to the Old Testament because I think that for a lot of Christians, they spend tons of time in the New Testament. And I have no criticism of that. But what that can sometimes cause is a disconnect between the rhythm of the New Testament versus the rhythm of the Old Testament. Right? And you start to read those and think that they are distinct books, and they don't really communicate with one another. But for Paul, and for the disciples, and for Jesus, for them, worship was the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. right? Jesus would have spent all his time preaching all his sermons from the Old Testament. He didn't have any reference to Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? They, that didn't exist at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was what became a curiosity for me. If Jesus and the disciples, the 12, 
preaching all from the Old Testament, then what would it look like for us to at least do some heavy reference of the Old Testament in our preaching as well? So that was how I got to Romans. So I landed in Romans, known as Paul's seminal work on salvation. And then I start seeing all these references to the book of Psalms. Chapter three alone, there's four references to the book of Psalms, right? Which I did not expect. I'm thinking a seminal work on salvation, there's going to be a lot of high, heady theology. Um, it, it'll look kind of like the book of Hebrews, and in many ways it does. But even when you read the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of pointing back to the Old Testament. What was interesting for me was when Paul was pointing back to the Old Testament, he was pointing to the book of Psalms. And I think it begs the question, why? Right? What's so interesting about the book of Psalms? I'm interested in your feedback about this as a musician, but I think that what music is supposed to represent is what mankind is actually like. Now, probably the exclusion of that, maybe, is when you start reading love songs, romantic music, right? They seem to be, right, um, you know, I saw her and she made she made me flow. Okay. Right. So there's some, some poetry there. But even with that, I think it still represents the condition of man, right? Um, she didn't literally flow, but I think it does represent in song how you felt. So music meets people where they are. And from what I can tell, Paul seems to be using music in the same way. He's using the song to meet the people where they are. And then he ties strong theology into where they live. I think it's one thing that always intrigued me uh, personally is that so there's a lot of things that's happening right now um, in terms of I think looking at church almost as a culture and how the world started describing ch church culture rather than uh, church as a group of people gathered together to worship God. Um, what I also find interesting with that is there is strong uh, – I cannot find a better term for it, but uh, there there seems to be this heavy trend of specific songs being played, specific songs being sung uh, as a congregation. And, you know, it's it one person, I can't remember who pointed this out, but I remember um, reading this somewhere where around the time when the pandemic was beginning a lot of people uh, a lot of christian musicians were writing songs about god fighting our battles right so like there's that theme that constantly happens that reflects based on what the world tells us to do and yet i think that this another disconnect from new testament and to people and including of course the old testament is that people perceive them as like the New Testament, they already see it as an old book, right? Jesus was Jesus was here two thousand years ago, and uh, it yeah. at at the latest, the Book of Revelations. Yeah. Um, I read it somewhere that that it was predicted to have been written around the year ninety, right? AD yeah. ninety, yeah. which is which sounds crazy because that's yeah. about two thousand years ago already. It is, so, yeah. You know, yeah. it's. It's a it's two separate sections of the same book written such a long time ago. And I think another disconnection that does happen with Old Testament and New Testament is that, you know, not only do we not have any recording of how the Jewish people might have sung the Psalms, but also it just feels you know, like ancient. So like we, there's no way for us to quite understand what's happening uh, in terms of worship. And there's no way for us to really, you know, like look at what Paul is writing and referencing to Old Testament and go, yeah, I totally understand where he's coming from. You know, I think that that also like plays a part in, in a lot of people's mind 
and especially with music, like you said, it's interesting because Christian music is supposed to be balance, balancing on a tightrope, essentially. It's it's like you have to be musically creative because it has to captivate people's heart. And yet, you know, a lot of people, that was actually one of the biggest debates that I've ever heard in my life was that when I was first getting into worship ministry, there were people who were saying that, you know, when you do Christian music, you can't just be emotional. That was one thing that I heard. And to a certain degree, that is absolutely justified because if we're just emotional, that is to say that we are we are feeling, but there's no room for Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and there's no connection to spirituality and all of these things. All of that to say, I think Psalms really kind of capture what songs should look like in a way because it's almost like it's almost like a play where it's like beginning middle and an end there's a clear direction in in the in the uh in the prayers the individual prayers that the book of psalm represents but also at the same time i love how you said that paul was using it in a same way where he was trying to use that to make a firm common ground so that he can get closer to people yes. bringing the gospel to people so can, now let's let's go into like can you elaborate some of the examples that you found and like how paul is using that almost like a glue to tie some of the ideas and and gospel together so that he's because yes. when i read the romans what's also interesting is that now correct me if i'm wrong paul was a jew so he yeah. had he had a very firm Jewish background. Mm-hmm. Jesus, while he was a Jew, <laughs> he was he was considered somewhat unorthodox at the time because, you know, yeah. I mean, he came down and he looked like everybody else, but he was the son of God and he got on the cross. He died for us. And needless to say, it's 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 really new at the time i think that's something that i also am fascinated about the the new testament is that jesus was not old jesus was not an old ancient character that we could only imagine some of these people that paul is writing to have heard about jesus and might have seen jesus in real life right so how how is he kind of balancing again between his Jewish tradition and teaching the gospel that almost sounds new to Jewish people and yet it's still going back to the same old uh, theology from the Old Testament? Yeah, so I like what you said, uh, right? Jesus is more cutting edge than Paul. Right? <laughs> really kind of a bombshell. Um, so Paul seems to bridge that gap by having these powerful theological statements, and then he throws in a song from your playlist that makes it life. Right? Here's an example. I mean, Romans chapter three, the particular verse where Paul is going to quote the text is verse four. So I'm just going to read from verses one to four to kind of give some context, and then we'll go to, to the song that he's referencing. So it says, and what vantage, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So he's making this case for why Gentiles can come in without being circumcised, without insulting circumcision or duties, right? And cutting edge in the way that Jesus was cutting edge, right? Jesus was slapping around the Pharisees, so to speak, without saying that the law of the prophets is bad, right? A really delicate balance. So Paul's kind of walking that same line here. So what advantage of circumcision? He says, much in every way, to begin with, um, in verse two, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, right? So that's the prophecies of God. Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So now what you start to see in the book of Romans is more contrast, right? So 
I listed some earlier. So there's the contrast of, you know, the unrighteous versus the righteous. There's the contrast of this new way that Jesus is bringing in without dismissing the old way. And now Paul is talking about the contrast of the unfaithfulness of men as opposed to the faithfulness of God. That's what he's aiming at here in this passage, right? So does their unfaithfulness, does my unfaithfulness as a man mean that, right, that does it nullify God's faithfulness? Verse four, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and then he goes right into the playlist. So he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, that is Psalm chapter 51. And if my research is good, that's verse four. Right? So let me just read verse three and four. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, right? It's that latter part of verse four that Paul is quoting in Romans chapter three, verse four. And so what Paul is saying here, he's playing this song written by David, talking about his own unfaithfulness. And in this particular instance, the faithfulness of adultery, maybe sexual assault, right? The text doesn't say quite that clearly, but you know, you can read that into it. Um, but certainly adultery, certainly murder, right? And he says, right, I know my transgressions. I know my unfaithfulness. My sin is always before me. I've sinned against you. I've done this evil in your sight. And then David almost says, right, that my sinfulness is the proof that you're God, because we have no evidence that you sin. Right? So he says, get you and you only have I sinned, so that you may be justified in your words. So when God, when you accuse me of being unjust, you're exactly right. Right? My unrighteousness is proven in your accusation. Right? And then he closes with, um, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Everything that you say about me is right. right? So you can imagine somebody who reads the Psalms and has been the victim of adultery, or you've had somebody murdered in your family. And you start to question God, right? And, and that's the thing, right? It's, it is hard sometimes to believe in God when men do you wrong, right? But Paul takes that argument and really turns it around. He says, it is because men do you wrong that proves that they are unjust in contrast to God who is just, right? That's, that's the, the case really that he's making there. Have I explained that well? Does that make any sense? I think it does. So it's almost like, um, again, I, I, think, I think it's what's really neat about that statement that, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged or that you remain blameless. I think yeah. what's really interesting is that, I don't know. I, I do think that it's, it's kind of universal now that, because I think people mistake um, uh, putting blame onto God versus yeah putting blame onto myself as a problem of responsibility, right? So like it's my responsibility to carry uh, and therefore, you know, if, if 
I sin. It's my responsibility. There, there is a lot of self-centeredness in nature that's already instilled in our hearts just by default. And I yeah. think that, again, kind of ties into the idea that when Paul is making the case that, you know, when God accuses you of being uh, not righteous. Yes. It's not a question of you as a human being has failed, but it's rather the idea that because you are incapable of saving yourself, you need God's unconditional grace. And I think that's always the ending. But I think a lot of times when people hear that, they hear the word unrighteous and they hear the word blame or blameless. And they automatically have, I think, and even me, I think I would have jumped to the conclusion I don't know. I don't know if that's a really hopeful passage when yeah. the Romans is supposed to be in a way giving hope to people who's not Jews who can enter into salvation as well. Yeah. So you're right. I think that you could certainly perceive it as not hopeful. I think that's what makes the passage really controversial, right? And, and if I'm thinking about it, as a person, right? So take off the pastor hat, right? Take off the preacher hat. If I'm thinking about this as a person, I hold two contrasts in my mind. When I make a mistake, I want everybody to excuse me. When somebody makes a mistake against me, I want everybody to condemn me. Mm. Right? And what is really powerful about how Paul captures this is what he says is all the accusations of God against us are just. It is, it is the consistency of God's judgment that makes him so just. Because, right, so I can imagine for somebody who doesn't believe, or somebody who struggles to believe with God, right? So they struggle with the concept of hell. But I bet that they wouldn't struggle with the concept of somebody like Adolf Hitler going to hell. Hmm. Right. You know, because what we want on the inside is for judgment to be meted out, right. Passed out to people who are particularly evil. Right. And so Paul says that God is justified in his work and he prevails when he judges because his judgments aren't just based on my emotions and how I feel because I've been mistreated, but his judgments are right because they look at all injustice and he doesn't let any of that slide. Right? So he would be just as accurate in his judgment of Adolf Hitler as he would about his judgment of people who enslaved African-Americans, as he would in his judgment of people who were in a hit and run accident, right? He's very consistent and it's his consistency that makes him reliable. So Paul says here, right? He asks a rhetorical question. The question is, does my unfaithfulness make God any less faithful? Does it nullify the faithfulness of God? And he answers the question, no, my unfaithfulness demonstrates the faithfulness of God because he judges everybody right every time. And it's not based on the feeling. It's not, well, Shamar is my guy, so I'm going to give him a pass. But Hitler is really mean, so he's not going to get a pass. Right? That consistency and Again, the contrast, the consistency of God versus the inconsistency of my emotions, right? I want you to be really nice to me, Louis, but if somebody does something that I don't like, I need you to go punch them in the nose, right? (laughs) It's It's that consistency that I think is, I can see as being both a struggle for somebody like a Roman, right? Because their gods were very inconsistent 
right? Their gods were prone to make mistakes, um, right? I mean, right, this is no theological judgment. You can read Roman mythology and see that all over the place, right? So, I, all right, I'm not, I'm not besmirching pagans right here. Um, right? But their gods were very prone to mistakes, very inconsistent in the judgments, right? And so he is adding value, right? A level of dignity to people who aren't Jewish and aren't circumcised without demeaning people who are Jewish and are circumcised. And it's all built on the foundation of the consistency of God. I think right. that's and a really good point. He uses a song to do it. I mean, that's the crazy part. I think what's also interesting, uh, as you mentioned, the, speaking of the consistency, I think Paul is, again, I think this is the not a dilemma, but logically, I think when people oftentimes, I think what they also struggle with is that you know, when we make analogies of who's righteous and who's not in God's eyes. And yes. I mean, you know, if you read down to the latter part of the Romans chapter three, Paul makes a claim that no one is righteous. And right. I think that's right. really something that you already pointed out, but I'm just kind of reiterating to myself as well. But it's the idea that Everyone can be saved. Yes. But we also have to accept everyone was never righteous. Right. That, right. you know, in, in God's eyes, we were all sinners. It didn't matter what we sinned with. We were all sinners because right. I think, I think, and, you know, logically speaking, and even in a philosophical way, you could probably argue that the reason why we are so prone to making a, a, almost like a judgmental comments towards someone who might have done a quote unquote greater sin than you have, yeah. that's automatically by default. What you're saying is that you are in a better position than that other person. And therefore you're making the level ground into a, a, a graded ground, right? So it, it looks like, I think that's where Paul is saying that, you know, my unrighteousness is showing righteousness of God and yeah. our unrighteousness proves the fact that God is faithful to us, right? So I think that's that's where I think it's really interesting. Now, tell me about, there's a whole section that talks, that Paul talks about no one is righteous and it seems like it's just straight quotation from yeah. the Psalms. Yeah, so starting in, well, same chapter, so we're still in Romans chapter three, starting in verse 10. So let me go to nine to bring the context in. Here's what he says. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. So he's making that contrast again, right? Jews versus Gentiles. So we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... And then right now, very skillfully, he's going to prove this by using songs, right, that, that we can all identify with, right? The, the Psalms are all of us. So here he, here he goes. I'm in verse 10, um, the bottom half of verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does what is good. I'm going to jump down now to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? Now, uh, you know, oftentimes the Psalms, well, the biggest genre, so the Psalms, right, is, is a genre, a book. 
but within the Psalms are different genres of songs, right? Different kinds of songs, which makes sense, right? We got rock and roll, we got country, we got gospel, right? So they have genres too. The biggest genre of songs is the genre called Psalms of individual or corporate complaints. Right. Those are two different genres, but you stick it together. Right. Complaints are the most written, right. The most written about songs. So he pulls right, he rakes in all the complaints. Right. Again, the Psalms are all of us. And so one after the other, he goes, right. You, you want to make the case that God is unrighteous when he judges me, but righteous when he judges other people. But the Psalms are all of us. Let me use your playlist to prove that. <laughs> right. So, okay. So I'm going to do this from the Psalms. First, Psalm verse 14. Uh, Psalms 14, verses one and two. And I'm going to jump around a few times. He's in all kinds of different songs. So just I'll ask you a little patient with me, but here we go. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God, right? So that's the first reference he makes. None seeks after God. And David is like, God is looking down, looking for somebody who seeks after him, right? Rhetorically implying that nobody's seeking after God. And then verse three, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one, right? Now, here's verse one of that one. The song is written by David, Psalm. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Right? So that's the, that's the first song that he pulls from our playlist. Here's the second one. Psalm, uh, Romans 12, it says, the throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That is from Psalm chapter five and verse nine. Okay. Here's what it says. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destructive. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Right now, the beginning of that paragraph this is verse seven. It says this, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight to me. Right? So Paul here is referencing the abundance of God's love and how he's gonna enter into God's house because of God's righteousness, because his enemies are wicked and they've caused him to behave wickedly. So it's the same thing. Nobody's right. And think about it, right? How many times have you, have you heard this? I know I did it when I was a kid. Now my parents said, don't do something. I did it anyway. And they would go, Shamar, why did you do that? Well, my brother, you know, <laughs> my brother made me, but I wasn't, but then my sister, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. David here is blaming his enemy. You know, I'm not righteous, but it was my enemies. Right? <laughs> None of us are righteous, but it's all their fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> right? Even the structure of the Psalm itself proves Paul's point here. Nobody's righteous, but we're all blaming the other guy. Right. And it's the contrast between us and God. Last one. And then and then we can laugh about this. Verse 18. So I'm, I'm back in Romans chapter three, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that is a quote from Psalm chapter 36. Verse one. And this is also a Davidic song, right? So the choir master of David, servant of the Lord. Verse one, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. 
for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Right? Just, I mean, really just profound. Verse, I'll do verse three and four, because that's a paragraph, and then I'll stop. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Like the, the holistic nature of this, of this evil person is laid out plain. And right, but verse one, it just says there is no fear of God, right? Paul captures it there. They do all this because there's just no fear of God before their eyes. So that's why I say that when you're reading Romans, it is a difficult passage, but what really is difficult about it is that Paul puts everybody on level ground. Right. He puts me and my enemy on the same ground. He takes away, I think your illustration is beautiful. He takes away all the gradient. Right. The ground is just level. And that's hard to swallow until you remember that you wrote the song about your enemy. And you also reflected back on yourself in the same song. Right. So that's the beauty of Paul in, in Romans. I mean um in, in the song. I think it's yeah. so true to this day that I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, you know, that him and they would tell me some of the stories that they have about the him. And yeah. when I hear the stories, the reason why it's so moving emotionally, but also spiritually is because not necessarily because it's always true, because they were written yeah. still by human beings. But I think yeah. the fact that we can relate to it is such a big part of it. So, uh, you yeah. know, it's really funny because you're absolutely right. Uh, David, while he's writing about how it's the enemy's fault, but and yet he's laying out everything that the enemies do and he go and, and he's so detailed about it so logically what you have to say is oh my gosh he might be the enemy himself <laughs> he he knows the enemy better than the enemy does himself so i think that's really something that's also important for a lot of us to remind ourselves i think to this day and age where you know I think it's so easy, so easy to fall into the trap that because I'm a proclaimed Christian, I can just go ahead and place myself on a pedestal or yeah. or on on the other side of things. Uh, you know, I don't know if this I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I do remember someone talking about. Uh, and I can't remember if the if the person who mentioned this was a believer or a non-believer, but what that person mentioned was that how is it in Christian faith that right before death, if you accept Christ, you are able to go to heaven? And I, I think that's a that's a valid question. And one of the things that I always thought about was well, we do that in hopes that the person will enter into heaven, but it would be between that person and God, right? So like yes. for me, it's it's there's a song called The Least of These. Um, it talks about between the two thieves, I'm the least of these, right? The two in in the songwriters talking about the two thieves that were hung uh, uh, right next to Jesus on the cross uh, when Jesus was on the cross, and you know the same same idea where one thief looks at Jesus and as he is dying with Jesus or right next to Jesus, he goes. You see this man who's blameless and he's dying on the cross for us. 
I bel- and, and he proclaims his faith in his dying breath, right? And I think something about that concept where through faith we are saved. I think that concept is very, very hard to explain without understanding how the system was beforehand, right? So like, I think when I think about Jesus coming down and and dying on a cross, and so the whole New Testament idea, it's like God had a policy, right? <laughs> and and he originally had this policy to work for people. And it was supposed to work had the people obeyed what God was telling them not to do or followed yes. his policy of what to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. disobeyed and therefore we here we are. <laughs> but yeah. one thing that I found interesting was that the only divide that I think there is is like God had a new design in the New Testament where, you know what? Nobody passed the test. Nobody passed the test. And and I keep I keep mentioning to myself because I have to remind myself often about this. Uh I remember my wife was asking, did anyone from the old testament get into heaven? Or did anyone from the old testament see God? Right. And I said, from my memory, the only person who was as close as they could get was probably Moses or David. But but one thing that I remember from an old pastor that I that I had in the past, they said that well, even Moses and David, as great as they are in the Old Testament, they are not they have not entered into heaven. Right. So like they still have not they couldn't follow the laws themselves. Right. It, it was an impossible law with the corrupt original sin and our human nature. But Jesus comes yeah. down where God essentially tells us, believe him. If you cannot believe any other policies, believe him. Right. And yes. that's. That's the minimum thing. It's like professor saying, well, at least turn all the assignments and you'll at least pass, right? (laughs) It's kind of like that. But now what's interesting is that as we're talking about this, I read through a little bit. And then in the book of Romans, Paul goes into how righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, but through faithfulness, right? So that's where I think, again, people oftentimes, they they see the surface level of the problem and they're done. They they don't want to look – the look the pre, uh, preceding lines they don't want to look at what's going to happen after you are in the present times so it's oftentimes yes if we just stop at you know after the psalms and then and then he starts quoting how you know we are all no one is righteous and all of that it sounds like a eternal damnation but then it does paul brings out the light right and, yeah. and I, I think Paul brings out the light to people where they can say, oh, that's why we believe, right? So I I always perceived the way that Paul made the arguments very logically, you know, coherent, where everybody, like you said, they regardless of their backgrounds, they could understand where he was going and why he arrived to the conclusions that he did. And it's infallible in a way because, you know, because he's laid out everything that's from the Jewish tradition. So we know that it's the same God from the Old Testament. Yes. But then even in the New Testament, that same God is still the God that we serve. But through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we are born again. And and all of this is just in this one one chapter right it's it's really a it's a dense chapter i mean he he talks about 
God being the jest and the justifier, right? Which is, right, just, and I think you're right. I think that, I think he's saying all this not to bring condemnation. I don't think that his point is to make people feel bad, Jew or Gentile. And I can imagine in the first century, there was some controversy there. I think the, the Jews probably wanted him to make the Gentiles feel bad. And I can see the Gentiles wanting him to make the Jews feel bad. And he doesn't, he doesn't land there with either. So he says, right, none of you are righteous. But, right, so he, in, in one hand, raises the bar. And then on the other hand, he turns around and goes, but because none of you are righteous and because God is just, and the justifier, he's lowered the bar to a place where anybody can make it in if you would just believe. Right? That I think is really, I, mean, I shouldn't say I think, that is really the story of the gospel. Right? And I think if I had to land somewhere, but if there was one thing that I wanted people to think about, Right. Even looking at my unbelieving friends, and I've got some friends who don't believe, right? I've got some atheist friends. I think that it is easy to get stuck on the judgment of God and, and or the injustice in the world. Both of those can be a, a great place to get stuck, right? I mean, I, I look around and think about children being trafficked and adults being trafficked and Right. Breaks my heart and makes me mad. So I think there's certainly a case to be made for how there is injustice in the world. And it's a fair question to ask, you know, why does God allow that to happen? But I think that what he wants to communicate to you is that that injustice is more pervasive than you think. And, and I'm not... I'm not putting you in the category of someone who trafficked, so please don't hear that. But somehow, the mercy, the love of God is so rich that he can capture a trafficker, the one who has been trafficked, and the person who can't stop jaywalking. Right? That he is, he's inclusive. Maybe that's the best way to say it. And that not only is he inclusive, but he wants to include you, right? He, he, he wants as many people as will come to be a part of his family. And right, if I had to land anywhere, that's where I would land. That he, he, he says this and he writes this because he wants his family larger. But right, the only way to get his family larger is to, right, to bring some equality into the conversation. And so he brings equality in, in our hearts that in some way we all struggle, right? Our struggles are different, but we all struggle. And he came to rescue you just like he came to rescue the damned. And, you know, he will judge all with equality as well. Right. And it's it's disconcerting, right? But it's really beautiful and merciful at the same time. So those are my thoughts. I think it's a fantastic thought. I mean, again, I think there's no better way to elaborate the grace of God that's so wide so big yeah that it's you know our minds cannot comprehend it and and i think and my closing thought would be i think a lot of times and i've shared this with you personally before i sometimes believe that people who are not uh, unbelieving rather uh they are sometimes closer to god 
than they can possibly imagine themselves. And I think what's happening potentially is the idea that maybe they have in themselves the doubt or that idea they have of themselves. I am not good enough. So if I get judged, so that's a presumptive idea where you already arrived to the conclusion before it actually happened to you, right? So I think that's one of the reasons why Paul is saying, well, no one is righteous, (laughs) right? And don't worry, you have good company. Right, and in, in that sense, only God and God will be the only one who will always be righteous, right? So yeah. if you can't trust yourself, at least trust God. I think that's that's always the story that we find ourselves in in the in the gospel, I think. Yes. Yeah. So, Excellent. Well, it's so good to talk to you uh, about yeah. zombies. I I really wish that we could talk more but we have to wrap for now um okay, yep what i do want to know is uh how how can how can we spread this a little more right so that so that people hear it the right way and one way to do that is i think by coming to our wednesday night Wednesday night Bible study and prayer sessions. And you can always come to our Sunday worship at 11 a.m. And, you know, if you come, if you don't feel God just yet, that's fine. But you will see people who also struggle just as much as you do. And... I think that's the that's the beauty of fellowship that we have, or at least we're supposed to have, uh, in the church community. And I think that's that's what we want to encourage people who's listening to this and watching yeah. this. I think Trinity is a TBC is a beautiful, multiracial, multi-ethnic church, um, and they're kind and loving, flawed. Right. All that stuff together. Um, and so we have a good time on Sunday together. But you're exactly right. I think, you know, the the best time, if I can use that word, is on Wednesday when you can just ask a bunch of questions, right? Where you're free to be wrong and free to be right. Uh, so uh, I'm thinking about maybe doing two Bible studies right now. We have Bible study from six to seven. But for people who get off late, we're thinking about maybe doing the seven to eight or a seven to eight thirty Bible study so that you can still make it in. So we're we're trying to be in that way as inclusive as possible, trying to make it more convenient for your schedule. So if you have not come to TBC and you live in Lexington, what's the problem? Um, Sixteen seventy five, Strader Drive, Lexington, Kentucky. Me and my friends would love that. 